Emmett Smith. How about them cowboys? Walter Payton. Frank Gore. Barry Sanders. Adrian Peterson. Curtis Martin. Ladanian Tomlinson. Eric Dickerson, Tony Dorsett. How about them Cowboys? Well, those are the top 10 rushers in all time in the NFL. A combined total of approximately 142,560 yards, which is equivalent of 1,420 football fields, 8.1 miles of running. Between the 10 of them, there's seven Super Bowl rings, three with Emmitt Smith, one for Walter Payton, one for Jerome Bettis, two for Tony Dorsett. Went from old times into old school. The prime time was some new rules. With the running back, or as this segment like to call the running black. Back and forth like certain things that run their course. Whether off or on the field, everybody's lost. Pay the source to ride the horse at Jared Gore. Sean Payton started hating like he couldn't hack it. It's no remorse when everybody walks like a boss. That's how it happens when you're running in a different racket. Things have changed. Remember back in the day, Earl Campbell, Tony Dorsett, Walter Payton. The offense went through the running back. And if you look at the running back, the top 25 running backs are African American. There's only one non-African-American running back in the top 25, and his name is... Who, Riggins? You guessed it, yeah. John Riggins. That's <laughs> it. So that's why I'm calling this the running black, because now we see the game has changed. Whether it's college football, high school, it's all about passing. Spread offense. Three, four, five receivers, slot receivers. So this notion that we, we don't need running backs... And we see these running backs are taking an impact on their contract. Ezekiel, Ezekiel Elliott, Fournette, Delvin Cook, and of course Saquon Barkley have all been in the news. Why? No contract, no extension, no guaranteed cash after their rookie deals. You see what's happening? Well, when it comes down to it, Dave, it's really about the money, right? I mean, look, Zeke signed with the Patriots for, you know, whatever they gave him, you know. Uh, Dalvin Cook is signing with the Jets for one year. Uh, Saquon signed the tag for one year. The only one left is Josh Jacobs, and he was recently, you know, videoed at the uh, Raiders game telling fans that we'll make it happen. So it looks like these guys just decide to play the one year, play the year out, and then, you know, seek their fortune either elsewhere or with the same organization. So let's look at how it goes down. Break it down. Break it down. Bark, Saquon Barkley came out of Penn State. He signed a four-year, $31 million rookie contract with a $20 million signing bonus. So in a collective bargaining agreement, those are guaranteed contracts, rookie contracts. In other words, that's guaranteed money, your first four years. So let's say he came out as a junior, 21 to 25. Now we also know we have something called the Franchise Tag, which started in 1993. It was collectively bargained in 2010. Now, again, even though we claim it's free agency, the Franchise Tag is really, you're not a free agent. 
You're only allowed to negotiate with one team. So how's that free agency? So we look at Saquon Barkley, put in his four years, played above the contract. Josh Jacobs of the Rams, also Tony Pollard of the Cowboys. Same scenario. They want a franchise tag him for $10 million guaranteed. No extension, no long-term, because the assumption is the durability that running backs get hurt. That they're not going to play out the full contract. So we have a major dilemma in the NFL with running backs, or I think called running black. Okay, now Christian McCafferty, Christian McCafferty is, a, is an oddball, right? He's a white running back with the San Francisco 49ers who, who missed some games but managed to sign a big contract. The argument is, is that he's a two-way yeah, player. Meaning he can beat you as a receiver or running back, which is valuable to offenses, right? Well, look at the Giants offense. Yeah. Daniel Jones only threw 15 touchdowns. A bulk of his receptions were to Saquon Barkley. Bingo. Without Barkley, Daniel Jones is trash. <laughs> so another thing we see is that running backs are still important, but the whole thing is their durability. So you give them these guaranteed rookie contracts, but after that, while quarterbacks, while receivers, their value goes up, running back values have devalued. They go down. So we look at the ages of these guys, Ezekiel Elliott, 27, Fournette, 28, Saquon Barkley, 26. Then now they're in a, a tough situation. Well, some teams just look at it as trying to get production out of the position, which means it's running back by committee, and they can get a group of guys that are all inexpensive. So right? I guess teams figure we can get three running backs if there's 17 games, each run for 500 yards, that's 1,500 yards. Think of the math. That in today's game, a 17-game schedule, that most running backs will not make it the full 17 games. So what's going to happen in the next 3 to 5, 10 years? Will this change? What can running backs do? The Falcons drafted Bijan Robinson out of Texas. Will they do him the same way? Nice rookie deal. By year 5, you franchise tag him. Then after that, he's bouncing around team to team a $3 million contract. It almost sounds like the quarterback is the house and the running back is the car, you know? Here's Slick with the minute. When we take a quick look at all the coaching changes at the start of the NFL, the theme seems to be to throw shade at other coaches. Sean Payton started by saying the coach he had taken over for in Denver did the worst coaching job he had ever seen. Heads up, coach. The guy's still alive, and he's still coaching. I'm sure Nathaniel Hackett and the Jets can't wait for week five. Then we look at Ron Rivera, who's always been highly respected. But you have to scratch your head on this one. He said players had complained that the new offensive coordinator that he hired, Eric Bieniemy, was being too hard on them. Did an NFL coach actually just say that? He made the players and his coach look bad. It's football, people. It's supposed to be hard. Dave. Beaks, did Rivera have an ulterior motive for making that comment? This is the Slick Sports Minute. I'll see you guys soon. It's different for running backs compared to other positions. What's funny is that it wasn't always like that, but it is now. So if you're a running back, what do you do? What, what can you do but play it out, right? So these are not their prime earning years. Look at Dalvin Cook. Yeah. Mm -hmm. While for receivers in other positions, tight ends, quarterbacks, 
their salaries go through the roof. So let's check out when Burrow signs his extension, Herbert signs his extension. You'll see what I'm talking about. Look at Daniel Jones' extension. He is average at best, $40 million. Most of it guaranteed. That's the game, folks. So again, the history of the running back, Earl Campbell, Jim Brown, all of that has changed. Because I guess teams figure we can get three running backs if there's 17 games, each run for 500 yards, that's 1,500 yards. Think of the math. That in today's game, with 17 games scheduled, that most running backs will not make it the full 17 games. So what's going to happen in the next three to five, ten years? Will this change? What can running backs do? The Falcons drafted Bijan Robinson out of Texas. Will they do him the same way? Nice rookie deal. By year five, you franchise tag him. Then after that, he's bounced around team to team in $3 million contracts. To be honest, I can't give up that money, folks. $10 million, well, really $5 million after taxes, $5 million. Look at Le'Veon Bell. He gave up a year, came back with the Jets, was never the same. Of course, the Jets didn't have the offensive line like the Pittsburgh Steelers. But I know it's hard to sit out missing. That's $5 million you're not getting back sitting out the year. So running backs got a real tough now in the NFL. There's no doubt about it. Something that the, the Play Association have to address. Russell's is only going to get worse for these running backs. No doubt about it. Or running blacks, as you like to say. I believe you coined the phrase, my friend. So what else is on your mind, Big Dave? Jason Aldean, a country music star, has been in a whole lot of heat. He wrote a song, came out in May, called Try That in a Small Town. Well, Dave, before you even uh, read his lyrics, uh, you got to think about this. As we speak, uh, black singers, black country music singers, are becoming much more prominent on the country music scene and are actually considered the future of country music. People like Jimmy Allen, Kane Brown, uh, Mickey Guyton, Britney Spencer, uh, uh, Darius Rucker, Hootie from Hootie and the Blowfish, who was already pretty much on the scene the last few years. But now country music singers, black country music singers, are blowing up. And I'm sure a guy like this isn't happy about that at all. So go ahead, spit his lyrics. Let's see. Let's see what he's... Sucker punch somebody on the sidewalk, carjack an old lady at a red light, pull a gun on the owner of a liquor store, you think it's cool, well, act a fool if you like. Cuss out a cop, spit in his face, stomp on the flag and light it up. Yeah, you think you're tough. Well, try that in a small town. See how far you make it down the road. Around here, we take care of our own. You cross that line, it won't take long for you to find out. I recommend you don't try that in a small town. Come on now, son. Our last episode, when we talked about the Roaring Twenties, rural, urban, urban, African-American, rural, white. So it's an old dichotomy because we know that white people that live in cities and we know there's black people that live in rural areas. But nevertheless, it's an ongoing belief that small towns, rural small towns are mostly white. Urban series are mostly areas of African-Americans. He also goes on to say in the song, full of good old boys raised up right. If you're looking for a fight, try that in a small town. Okay, folks, when we say good old boys, who are we referring to? Let's keep it 100,000% real. Country singer, 
He's in Tennessee. Nas, good old boys. And if you look at the video, look at the images, we see that they were police protest images, mostly whites, rural families. So again, he knew what he was doing. Let's just be honest. The video was shot in Columbia, Tennessee, where in 1946 there was a major race riot. African-American Navy veteran was with his mother at the store and she had a radio repaired but the white store owner sold the radio and then Billy Fleming when they complained a white dude struck Stevenson's mother Stevenson a boxer in the Navy knocked the dude punched him through the window you see what I mean and then Stevenson his mother was arrested for disturbing the peace but the guy who got the white guy that got knocked through the window wanted to be arrested for attempted murder. So essentially, uh, the two uh, were taken out of of jail, released to a man named Julius Blair's custody, drove out of town for their protection. But there was a mob that did not disperse. A hundred African men patrolled the neighborhood because they knew the whites would come in and try to get Stevenson, Stevenson and his mother. Four police officers were shot and wounded when they entered the mink slide. That's, in other words, the black part of town. State troopers began ransacking black businesses, stealing goods and cash, and rounding up African Americans. They cut the phone service to the mink slide, which is the black side of town. And also, they got the NAACP involved. So when he shot this video in Columbus, Tennessee... This is the history that African Americans are talking about. There was also a lynching in that town in 1927. So this is intentional, folks. Almost like with Dylan Roof, when he murdered those folks in the black church. The church at Denmark, B.C. in 1822 was burnt to the ground. You see what I mean? So these, so on the one hand, he's denied that he knew, right? Good old, what he knew, when he said, good old boys, try this in a small town, there's no racial overtones because I did not say race. But again, folks, what do we talk about? Dog whistle politics. In the 70s, they call it forced busing. You see what I'm saying? You use these dog whistles. Good old boys. Cussing out cops. Burning up flags. In this culture, we know when they make those statements who they're referring to. He knows what he's talking about. And there's no doubt that he's a he's a big-time pro-Republican person. In fact, he was an anti-vaxxer, anti-Joe Biden. His wife sells conservative clothing with, uh, with, with sayings that goes unsilent majority. Military lives matter. We the people, this is our bleeping country. So we know what his political perspective is. So, of course, now he's claiming he's being victim. The cancel culture is coming after him. But nevertheless, this song is drawing up attention. In fact, Nikki Haley played it at one of her campaign stops. Why? Because she wants votes. She doesn't care. So this is going to be an ongoing discussion throughout the campaign 2024. This is going to even probably lead to more streams for this, this song. But nevertheless, this goes back to what we talked about last time. 
the roaring 20s, rural, urban, what's happening in this culture. You see what I mean? And that's how he's interpreting it. Good old boys, try to small. In other words, in the big cities, they're lawless. They disrespect the flag. They spit on cops. They carjack people. In rural areas, we all stick together. Like there's no poverty in rural areas. Like there's no crime in rural areas. Like there's no underperforming schools in rural areas. Please. Those things exist too, no doubt about it. So that's all a mythology in itself. But that's what this song means, and that's what's all the blowback. You see what I'm saying? Incredible. Amazing. It's crazy. And finally, like to end on this. Affirmative action. Hold on, let me shut off the music for this one. Alright, go ahead. Go ahead. The Supreme Court struck down affirmative action in college admissions for race. Right? So what happened, folks? Um you find that blaming black people is always an easy way to get things done in this country. Obama's elected 2008. Now there's election integrity issues, black people. <laughs> Affirmative action helps not only African-Americans, but also white women and number one beneficiaries blame African-Americans. It's real simple. Crime, blame African-Americans. Welfare, blame African-Americans. You see the pattern, folks? So in these cases, by led by Ed Bloom, they find Asian Americans who are saying they're not getting into the Ivy Leagues as the numbers as they should be. That they have perfect SAT scores, community service, and all these other high attributes, but still not getting in. So who do they target? African Americans and Latino Americans. They don't target the athletes, Right? The Ivy League athletes, who I bet if you look at the admission scores, there's many Asian Americans that have higher SAT scores and GPAs and many of the white athletes in the Ivy League conferences, but nobody says that. They don't target the legacies, those whose uh, parents and grandparents went to Harvard and also donated a big check to name after a building. They target African Americans and Latino Americans. It's a consistent pattern. Abigail Fisher, University of Texas case. She says she didn't get in because un unqualified African-Americans and Latino-Americans got in. But looked at her records, there were white students who had lower grades than she did that got in. There were African-Americans and Latino-Americans with higher grades and they got in the University of... They didn't get in the University of Texas. But it doesn't matter. So we see that was Ed Bloom's strategy all the time. Target African-Americans and Latino-Americans. Allegedly, they're getting in with low scores. They're getting in underqualified, a separate system letting them in. And you hear this over and over again. And this is what happens out here, how race racism works in the culture. Now there's a lawsuit going after legacies at Harvard. We'll see how that case goes. Because the reality is a lot, how these schools function to get big donations, they depend on these legacies. How do you think they have such huge endowments at Harvard and Yale? Because they have family members who can write $10, $20 million checks or they leave money to Harvard in their will. That adds up to the endowment. So what's going to happen? Will they strike down, Supreme Court strike down legacies like they did race 
and college admissions, or we continue to attack African Americans and Latino Americans. You go after the groups that don't have as much power. That's the reality. And also public opinion. And then they always use, they love to use this. Well, do you think the Obama girls deserve affirmative action? So they always throw that in there. Of course, using that, that extreme. But the reality is that's the question. The argument is, is that in 2023, there are plenty of second generation African-American college educated students in this culture. For example, my children. When they apply to medical school, law school, Brown, or Yale, should race be considered? Now, one would argue that, well, yes, they're second generation, but there's also still an ongoing wealth gap between black elites and white elites. And we see this still existing. Because nevertheless, if there's competitive internships that these students want to apply to, oftentimes they're located in Washington, D.C. You have to pay for your own housing, and sometimes the internships don't pay. So again, who has that advantage? Those with wealth and resources. So we're going to see what happens. We look at California, Preposition 209. We look at UCLA and Berkeley had a major impact on African Americans' admissions to those institutions. So we'll look at the next few years, how this is going to impact the Ivy League institutions or the elite institutions in terms of African American students. Will many more apply to HBCUs? Will many apply to less prestigious schools? We'll check out those numbers and see affirmative action impact in the next two to three, four years. But what also was left alone was gender. So gender didn't come up, but the reality is white women have been the number one beneficiaries of affirmative action. But that never comes up in the conversation. I wonder why. You see what I'm saying? It never comes up because it's easy to blame race. It's easy to blame African Americans. Create a boogeyman. Create a monster. Critical race theory. Black lives matter. You see what I'm saying? Black power. Marcus Garvey. There's a long history of that, creating this black boogeyman to create fear, misinformation, and ignorance to move public policy to the right. When you check out the data, it shows a totally different picture. But those in power understand that those who are not in power do not believe in data. They believe in lies and misinformation and can be easily manipulated through media, through social media. So when you say affirmative action, a black person runs through your head. When you say crime, a black person runs through your head. When you say welfare, a black person runs through your head. But the reality is crime is interracial. There are more white people on welfare in this country. There are numerically more poor white people than black people, but it doesn't matter. In spite of what the data says, when you watch the news, you come up with a whole different conclusion about these issues. So this is why, again, why voting matters, why getting representation out there matters, why reading matters, why understanding information, where it comes from matters. Because if it, if it doesn't matter, you'll be easily manipulated, and I'm out. Well said, my friend. Very well said. And that's the show, folks. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter and subscribe to the show on iTunes.
Because we're going to bring you another podcast for your punk ass as soon as it's humanly possible. Because without you, dark brown shades of my skin, there would only be us. Only add color to my tears. Oh, oh. That splash against my hollow bones. That rocks my soul. Oh, oh, oh. Looking back over my false dreams that I once knew. Wondering why my dreams never came true. Is it because I'm black? Uh-huh. Somebody tell me, what can I do? Oh, Lord. Oh. Something is holding me back uh-huh. Is it because I'm black? Yeah In this well of no pity I was raised in the ghetto of the city Yeah, oh Lord uh. Mama, she worked so hard to earn every penny, yeah, oh, Lord, something is holding me back, uh-huh, is it because I'm black, <laughs> 